Hello and welcome to Feed and Flourish, the bite-sized podcast series from the Closters Forum with me, Hannah McInnes. In this series, I'll be talking to experts about biodiversity and about ways in which we can transform our food systems so as to positively preserve our planet. The Closters Forum brings together thought leaders and decision makers in the Swiss Alps to inspire discussions and cultivate collaborations around some of the world's most pressing environmental challenges. I'm Will, and I'm the CEO and founder of Hummingbird Technologies, Um, and we're an artificial intelligence business um, that uses satellite imagery and other data sources from space to tell farmers and people in the food chain insights about their crops. Um, So we count plants, and like an MRI scan, we tell you where you've got a problem so that you can use less chemistry. That's brilliant. What, what then, in your experience, do you think are the greatest threats to, to biodiversity where farmland and crops and farming is concerned? So biodiversity is, is directly linked with, with soil health. And to get biodiversity on, on a farm, you have to integrate different types of farming together. You have to, you have to grow different types of crop together and you have to combine that with 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 trees and livestock and um by being biodiverse in the long run you can produce um better quality food and improve the environment and the soil that you have at your farm but that journey is is paved with all sorts of hurdles and often the there's a conflict between you know survival on a profit and loss basis um meeting you know, enormous food chain supply, feeding a growing population, um, and that biodiversity incentive that that I think all farmers at heart want. So when it comes to thinking about biodiversity and preserving biodiversity across the world, are farmers part of the problem here or are they part of the solution or is it both? So I'm an optimist and I'd like to think that they're part of the solution. And I'll explain why. If you're a farmer that grows multiple crops and you also grow cover crops and you have grass margins and you have flowers with bees that populate your land and you use um, no-till so you're you're responsible in terms of how you churn up the soil Um, and if you do all of those things and you use less chemicals or no chemicals um, and if you preserve your natural capital and if you if you are a biodiverse farmer that, that integrates forms of livestock and, and, and other practices into your daily management of your land, you will be a net carbon sequestering business. And what I mean by that is you will quite literally put carbon back into the soil. We measure soil organic carbon across farms that do this. And this is, you know, capable on a global scale of of reversing climate change or it, it theoretically is and you know you you hear endless stories about you know dairy farmers and livestock farmers that are that are that are contributing to cli- climate change in negative terms but but I'm aware of many farms that are doing the opposite so i would encourage people to think more broadly about biodiversity and how can we actually reverse um carbon emissions in a really positive way that 
looks after the environment, looks after the soil, and potentially looks after the livelihoods of, of those that do it. Can you explain that a little more? How can farmers actually reverse that? On a very simplistic level, if you put loads of chemicals into the soil, it will, it will reduce microbial activity and will reduce carbon levels in the soil. Um, and if you planted the same crop year on year, like year after year after year, it would do the same. But if you let the land breathe and you encourage all of this fungal below the soil activity, you increase the levels of carbon capture. So, so quite literally, the plants, the vegetation in the soil will capture more carbon from the atmosphere and it will sequester it in the soil. How can farmers afford to do that? Because you're then leaving it unfarmed and you're not making any money from it. So I'll give you a good example. I mean, if you grow peas or beans, these are nitrogen fixing legumes. So you don't have to put chemicals on on those crops in the same way that you do with others. So those plants will literally replenish the soil. Nature always has an answer. If your areas of your farm are not performing well, then perhaps you would consider returning them to natural habitat. There's, there's a whole movement around rewilding. But, you know, farmers have other options than just, you know, letting vegetation grow or growing crops. All of these things combined can regenerate. Biodiversity does regenerate the soil, but it actually you can actually measure carbon that gets captured as well. I suppose what I'm confused about is there's no financial incentive to do that, is there? Well, there, well, there might be. So imagine you're EasyJet or British Airways and you have a certain number of carbon, you have carbon tons emitted annually. And if you were able to, to measure and monitor tons of carbon that could be put back into the soil in farming, surely there's a mechanism by which that gets accredited and traded and financially supported. I mean, there have been unregulated carbon markets for years, but this is a this is a movement that is moving. This is moving extremely fast now. We're seeing, you know, many startups um, focus on this. We're, we're seeing in New Zealand there's a scheme. In Australia, you have various kind of um, carbon trading sort of platforms. I mean, this is this is coming. I'd say absolutely fascinating. So, is consumer need and the way we approach food and food systems ultimately a threat to how farming should be done? I think that a smaller proportion of consumers than you'd imagine will actually put their money into biodiverse sort of produce. I think one of the problems is is a lack of um, transparency in the food chain about what we're buying, where did it come from, what chemicals went into the ground, or antibiotics went into the animal to produce it. There's a lack of visibility. I think people are getting much more um, aware of of what they buy and where it comes from. But ultimately, it's it's driven largely by price, and you know, a, only a very small segment of consumers can afford to to pay up for for produce that that, that comes from from you know, it's perhaps perhaps a a realm that is biodiverse, ethically sourced, organic, and so forth. It's one of my biggest frustrations that what 
is natural, biodiverse, organic, ethically sourced. Why is that more expensive? Why has that become associated with affluence and elitism when it should be the most natural and easy to come by? So mass mass produced sort of commodity crop or large scale livestock has associated economies of scale that that just allow people to produce things more, you know, in a, in a cheaper format. Um, you know, so that that's what it's competing against. I guess Hummingbird's mission is to to sort of to sort of merge both. So what what we do is we help really large scale farmers use less chemistry. So you know, imagine you were able to see every single plant in every single field that you managed and treat them all with different levels of chemical. We're we're applying almost like a small plot organic farmer mindset to a very large area. And that's where technology comes in, where you can try and introduce biodiversity or organic methods or or really individual plant sort of levels of control on on a on a scale that you know human beings could never could never handle. So this idea that technology is the answer is that very well received across the world. You obviously have taken your product all over the world. So if you can save a farmer in Russia or a farmer in Brazil um, pounds per hectare by using less chemicals and you don't impact the yield, they will use your product. But beyond that, you're not going to be able to you know, launch a business or thrive or sell a product unless you can link your tool with some kind of saving, either now or in the future. Sustainability will get you through the door. But unless you're in, you know, Europe or unless you're in an industry where there's some regulatory fl- framework that actually supports it as well, um, you know, you do you do have a challenge. Now, what's interesting in in the UK with the transition to Elm and um, a move a move against kind of you know public money for public goods and trying to encourage people to you know move into natural capital preservation is that there's there's suddenly now a financial incentive a switch where governments and regulators are are supporting paying for farmers to improve their biodiversity that's really interesting so i was going to ask you who you think is most responsible is this down to governments i think all farmers everyone in the food chain wants it like you know, there's a there's a wider question about the role of government but yeah you know, we're certainly seeing like a pretty a pretty massive switch into this um, and some of it's consumer led some of it's government driven but what's what's fascinating is that you know that you, you know people that own the land are, are now taking a much longer term approach they they see themselves as stewards for the next generation um you you there there is there are there are multiple stakeholders at play here that are contributing towards you know what what is quite frankly, a revolution on a on a ground level at every farm in the world. You mentioned consumers then. What, what do you think are the main things that consumers and individuals and people listening to this podcast who don't work in the industry, what should they be thinking of with their food choices and supply chains in mind when they go to the supermarket or go online or when they're buying their food? What are their main priorities? What should they be? I think they should be thinking about how they can buy local like wherever possible um and i think they should be thinking about what goes into the crops or 
plants or or fruit and vegetables that they buy um you know both in in terms of chemical like inputs um but also kind of what's the what's the environmental impact of of some of that um farming like if you buy you know wonky vegetables that that doesn't have aggressive herbicide kind of washed all over it you are helping your own body and you know you're probably supporting like someone local that 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 otherwise wouldn't be able to sell through what is quite a sort of commoditized supply chain i think that's still the sort of the that's still a very important like route where consumers can kind of like make make a big impact but many supermarkets, and we could go into this for hours, and I won't, but many supermarkets refuse, don't they, from farmers, wonky vegetables, anything that isn't perfect, and they end up being wasted, and there's nothing that consumers can do about that. I mean, unfortunately, we're seeing kind of 30% food waste just left in the field, right? So we we work with you know very large potato and lettuce growers around around the world to size and grade those lettuces so that they get harvested when Walmart wants them or when Sainsbury's want them and they're the right size. So, you know, deep learning based algorithms and technology is capable of, of, of solving this problem, right? You just put the wonky vegetables in a different bucket and they go to a farmer's market. So, so people are working extremely hard across the supply chain to, to try and like, alleviate this kind of supply demand mismatch and eliminate food waste but clearly it's a work in progress so obviously at the moment we're talking at extra extraordinary times in the middle of this corona epidemic people are going to be listening to this podcast hopefully when we're well out of it but how is that affecting farmers and farming and the supply chain so so i think on the one hand you know food and farming is unbelievably resilient we all have to eat that that's not going to change if anything there's 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 been this enormous surge in demand particularly supermarket led demand for some produce um but at the same time you know the restaurant sector and hospitality sector has fallen away and so you have these very violent swings in in demand i think it's normalizing as we as we speak um but it, so to some extent it's business as usual however you know, farming relies on, you know, 80,000 seasonal workers to pick the strawberries that we that we all buy from supermarkets. So there are much bigger kind of human capital problems. And if, if people get sick, then then clearly there's going to be more pressure. Um, so it's, 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 it's a fascinating time. In many regards, it's a, it's a key sector, right? It's an essential sector that we need, you know, all of us need in order to survive. Um but it, but it's facing its own challenges, um, albeit it is, you know, nicely shielded economically from from some areas that that, that have seen just demand go from hundred percent to zero overnight. Do you, do you think there's a sense that our attitudes are changing because of this, almost for the better? And people are unable to get foods as easily and as readily as they could. People are having to understand more about the fragility of a supply chain and not being able to get something that's out of season do you think there's a sense in which going forward and after this this will change people's attitudes to farming and to the way they buy their food I hope so I mean I hope that the supply chain you know has been you know the tide has gone out and what you can see before you is the supply chain and we we notice it now when we walk into supermarkets and we see the things that we buy regularly not there so people are thinking about 
you know, sourcing and um, distribution in ways that they probably never had before. But more broadly, farming has often been the the bully boy for for people that um, perhaps perhaps have a sort of one track mind in terms of biodiversity and climate change and so forth. And I think that we're going to see a uh, seismic shift over the next few years and people will understand that food and farming can also be a solution as well as part of the problem so farmers that that are responsible farmers that look after natural capital farmers that are biodiverse can actually sequester carbon and they can do that throughout the whole supply chain in a way that you you can actually be a positive and net contributor to climate change and diversity through farming i think you know you get bad farmers and good farmers and everything in between but it's important to to see it with an open mind well thank you very much indeed thank you for your time